Today's scripture comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter thirty-four, verse one through six. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees. As far as Zor, the Lord said to him, "This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, 'I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there.'" Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Bethel, but no one knows his burial place to this day. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter twenty-two, verses thirty-four through forty. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Five hundred and forty-five. Five hundred. And forty-five. For those of you who haven't been keeping up with the news this week, or for those of you whose news feeds have been drowned out with the politics surrounding these debates, this number is actually probably the most defining piece of information about America to come out. Definitely this week, certainly this month, and I would honestly argue an entire age of the American nation. Five. Hundred and forty-five. What you might ask? Children. Five hundred and forty-five children. Can you even imagine that many kids? Five hundred and forty-five children. Each one made in the image of God. Each one special and unique and beautiful beyond measure. Five hundred. And forty-five of them, in cages, in camps, separated from their parents, like untold thousands of others. These five hundred and forty-five children are those whom the United States government ripped from their mothers and fathers, placed in cages without a thought as to what would happen next, and now cannot find their parents. Every parent's 
worst nightmare, being separated from their child, is being etched on thousands of unwilling hearts, cheered on by a chorus of fear, incompetence, neglect, and outright malice descended upon this nation from its very top. Now shaped into unchanging, twisted permanence for the 545 lost children. And if, like me, you are an American citizen, this abhorrent crime, this unbelievable sin against our shared humanity, this technically genocidal abomination, it was done in your name, by your government. We did this. Oh, it's easy to dismiss this as a Trump thing. It's easy to pretend that these are the actions of the overfed and unseeing political elites of our nation, to wash all that culpability from our hands on the altar of, well, we didn't choose this. But we did. Sure, we didn't all vote for the current administration. In fact, more of us voted against than for it. But the framework for this travesty has been laid down over decades, and not just in our political structure. With every family argument that started with, those Mexicans are taking our jabs, and ended with, oh, just agree with him and don't start a fight, it'll only make it worse. With each one of those, a stone of the foundation was laid. With every politician who got up on a debate stage or a press conference, who was permitted to drop racist rhetoric on challenge, another brick was put down. Rebar, wood paneling, these were the times when brown faces arrived on our televisions unquestioned and constant in the role of criminals, while white faces rose as saviors, and we all laid it up as good stories, harmless fiction. An altar built of black bodies bleeding in the streets while white bodies turned their heads away, convinced that it was somehow deserved. And before you know it, we built a temple to Baal. Only this time he's known by another name. Today we know him as white supremacy, as hatred of the other, as tribalism, violence, and the stone-heartedness of a people who imagine themselves good. And from this temple he preaches sermons that open with 545 children in cages, separated from their parents, never to be reunited. Do you really want to know how this sermon ends? Of course you don't. You, just like me, and I imagine... Like most of the rest of us, you're a person who thinks of themselves as fundamentally good. So, like Moses, your inclination in this moment is to be roused to fury, to grab your staff, part the seas, and charge in, screaming, saying, The promised land is this way. Follow me to salvation. Ah, oh, that image feels good, doesn't it? The idea of just charging in and doing that one great grand gesture of pure spiritual, emotional, and practical magnificence that sets right all that was wrong and saves the world in one powerful blue tide of change. Amen, amen, and amen. Of course, as nearly anyone who's ever been in a minority group, especially a minority group in America, will tell you that is the exact kind of white nonsense that fails to accomplish anything roughly 100% of the time, and often winds up getting people hurt or worse. We hold up figures like Moses as these great, faithful, heroic, savior-like examples, but the truth is that their faith, their behavior, doesn't hold up to this ridiculous, inhuman standard of excellence. In today's verse, we see Moses' death. We hear today how the story ends. 
And we know how it begins. The murder that Moses commits aside, he does the great work of saving the Israelites on God's behalf, only to lead them out into the desert with only God's promise of the thus named promised land to guide them. And along the way, both Moses and the people are challenged by God to demonstrate true, good, and pure faith during their journey. The kind of faith that can move mountains, or at the very least, see a people safely through the desert. And along the way, both Moses and the people constantly fail at it. Back in the book of Numbers, chapter 20, we get a really good example of as usual, being that they're wandering through the desert and all the Israelites start complaining about the lack of water. And instead of doing as he ought and telling the people who had already seen manna fall from heaven just for them, telling them to have some faith. Instead, he grabs his brother Aaron, turns it all right back around to God and brings the complaint before the Almighty instead of just having some faith himself. So God makes with the water. But in the end, God says privately to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. And today in Deuteronomy, we see that promise played out. Because Moses couldn't keep the faith. He doesn't get to participate in the amazing act of salvation and power that would be the bringing of his people into the promised land. No, instead of moving that mountain, he gets the lesser miracle, pulling water out of some small anthill of a rock. This lesser known side of Moses' story isn't just a one-off either. It's something we all have to reckon with as we try to live lives of faith and righteousness in the shade of human sinfulness and greed and hate. In researching for today's sermon, by which I mean listening to podcasts and procrastinating wildly, of course, I came across the book, They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945, by Milton Mayer. Now, those of you who are, of course, current on your podcast might recognize this as one of the primary sources for a recent episode of uh, Robert Evans's amazing podcast, Behind the Bastards, which I would highly recommend for some good history knowledge, but I digress. In this book, we are presented with the account of some colleague of the author, an, an educated man a chemical engineer who served in a defense plant in Germany during the war. Now, he considered himself a specialist in his field with no real involvement in the politics of government or war or anything like that. And when he was asked for his take about the events surrounding the war, he spoke on what he considered to be the moment that for him, the whole world was lost. Now, he didn't talk about the camps or Hitler's politics or the various resistant groups, or even take the time to laud his own long-running efforts to save Jews from the Holocaust and secret them out of the country. No, instead, he talked about a day very early on when the government came to his place of business to insist that everyone there swear an oath of fidelity to the German government. In the moment when he was first asked to do this, he refused to do it outright, opposing it, as he said, in conscience. But he was given 24 hours to think it over. And in those 24 hours, he realized that refusal to take the oath would mean the loss of his job. Not prison or death or anything like that, just the loss of his job. Of course, losing his job for opposing the government would ensure that he would never get another job again. And while he was fairly certain that he could just leave the country with his family and 
get work elsewhere, he rationalized in the end that if you were to take the oath with, you know, of course, the usual internal mental reservations, then he would stand a chance of being of some help to others farther down the line. So the next day, after thinking it over, he decided to take the oath. That day, he said, the world was lost, and it was I who lost it. Of course, the man, the author who was interviewing him for this book, noted with some incredulousness that this colleague of his had in fact saved a great many people, hundreds, perhaps even thousands he had saved, hiding them in his house, helping them to escape. And in response to this, this is what the man said. First of all, there is the problem of the lesser evil. Taking the oath was not so evil as being able to help my friend later on would have been, but the evil of the oath was certain and immediate. And the helping of my friends was in the future, and therefore uncertain. I had to commit a positive evil there and then in the hope of a possible good later on. The good outweighed the evil, but the good was only a hope. The evil, a fact. Now, he went on to suggest that had he not taken the oath, all of those who died in the Holocaust might have been saved. When the interviewer responded with even more incredulousness, this was the man's response. There I was in 1935, a perfect example of the kind of person who, with all his advantages in birth, in education, and in position, rules, or might easily rule, in any country. If I had refused to take the oath in 1935, it would have meant that thousands and thousands like me all over Germany were refusing to take it. Their refusal would have heartened millions. Thus, the regime would have been overthrown, or indeed, would never have come to power in the first place. The fact that I was not prepared to resist in 1935 meant that all the thousands, hundreds of thousands like me in Germany were also unprepared, and each one of these hundreds of thousands was, like me, a man of great influence or of great potential influence. Thus, the world was lost. These hundred lives I saved, or a thousand or ten as you will, what do they represent? A little something out of the whole terrible evil when, if my faith had been strong enough in 1935, I could have presented the whole evil. I did not believe that I could remove mountains. The day I said no, I had faith. In the process of thinking it over, in the next 24 hours, my faith failed me, so in the next 10 years, I was able to remove only anthills, not mountains. My education did not help me, he said, and I had a broader and better education than most men ever had or ever will have. All it did, in the end, was to enable me to rationalize my failure of faith more easily than I might have done had I been ignorant. In the book of Matthew, we're given what is known to us as the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This commandment is presented uncompromisingly. It doesn't say to love our neighbor so long as the politics of the situation do not make it especially difficult. It does not say to love our neighbor provided we can do so in a way that secures our own safety first. It doesn't say to take whatever action we need to in the present so that we might someday love our neighbor in the future. The commandment to love is simple, forthright, and far more bold than we often give it credit for. 
In this commandment, we are called to show the faith that Moses lacked. We are called not to do the positive evil today in hopes of a greater good tomorrow. We are called to show that love today so that others might see God's love made manifest in us and realize through the echoes in themselves of our merciful creator God who speaks to all hearts in words of mercy, justice, and love. So when that racist relative throws down at Thanksgiving dinner, we are called to stand up to it, not because we think grandpa's going to suddenly change his mind about Mexicans after 50 plus years, but because of that 15-year-old cousin listening in from two rooms away who's secretly in love with a girl from school but has been afraid to say anything because her and her family immigrated from Guatemala and he doesn't know if that'd be okay. When we see a cop roll up on a black neighbor for no reason, we're called to stop, watch, and help, to protest and to protect not because we expect to be effective, but because when the white neighbor peeking out through her blinds sees the anger of the state turned against skin like theirs, then the true injustice of the situation might be exposed for her. When we see religious leaders condemn LGBTQ folks from the pulpit, we're called to walk out and protest, not because we expect these leaders to suddenly realize that their condemnation comes from personal prejudice and not the lips of God but because Three Pews Back is a young girl with a lot of confusing feelings who needs to know that the whole world doesn't hate her for who she is. When we see a politician get up on stage and say that 545 children separated permanently from their families is the system working as designed, we're called to the ballot box to vote, not because we expect our votes to count, but because all those around us who can't cast a vote need to hear the voices of their neighbors crying out that their humanity is valid, that their suffering is intolerable, and that we will take what action is necessary to ensure that they are loved just as we are, starting from the ballot box and ending with whatever is necessary to bring about the world on earth as it is in heaven. My friends, our pragmatics won't get us to the promised land. And the day we act like they will is the day that the world is lost for all of us. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, not with reservations, not with hesitations, not in the abstract theory of a possible future with tools that we built up for ourselves by refusing to love actively today. No, we are called to love actively today. Love unreservedly and love without ceasing. We are called to take action on God's command to love and to show that our faith is sufficient to the task. So have faith. Have faith so that you don't look back in the years gone by counting the handful of anthills that you were able to push over in your time. Because there are 545 mountains that we've got to move today. Amen. You will never be the same. And with a full catastrophe, he didn't mean it was so bad. Oh, that I wasn't had the way of saying, don't play with me! I invite you to the dance. To the dance with the Lord of the Dance. God didn't call America to do what she's doing in the world now. Please dance.